and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 126, The Fall of the Samurai, part 9. Today we're going to start off on the tumultuous events of the years 1863 and 1864, which are going to see the stakes of the political game in Japan rise a great deal. This is really the point when events start moving away from a tense political dispute and towards armed rebellion, civil war, and debatably a revolution. Sounds like a recipe for a good time, so let's get going. We left things off last week with the appointment of Matsudaira Katamori as protector of Kyoto, a position that basically made him the city's military governor. Once in office, Matsudaira was forced to confront a city that was in the grip of political violence, and he had a very limited time to do so. The shogun, Tokugawa Iemochi, either independently or under the sway of his imperial wife, Princess Kazunomiya, had decided to take a trip to Kyoto to consult with the emperor in person, so Matsudaira Katamori had a very limited time frame to get things back under control before the shogun arrived. The solution he hit upon was to build up the forces under his direct command. Remember, the Tokugawa garrison in Kyoto was actually relatively small, and responsibility for protecting the city and the imperial palace was shared between different domains. Matsudaira Katamori decided that the way to bring the city to heel was to increase the number of samurai there under the Tokugawa banner. More samurai could be brought in from other domains, sure, but this could upset the delicate balance between all the domains who shared responsibility for Kyoto and could risk a political crisis, especially if Matsudaira Katamori brought in samurai from his own domain of Aizu, in which case he could be accused of plotting a coup. So the new troops had to be there under the auspices of the shogun, and they had to be raised quickly. The solution Matsudaira hit upon was to recruit a new unit from among the ranks of the ronin, samurai who had been disavowed by their masters for some kind of disobedience or bad behavior. Such men would be desperate for some chance, any chance, for a stable income and a return to samurai status. And indeed, a large contingent of them did sign up, so that Matsudaira was able to rapidly form a cohort of samurai he called the Roshigumi, loosely translated the Ronin Samurai Corps. Unfortunately, this little experiment almost ended in disaster, because the man selected for command of the unit was a closet Shishi sympathizer who planned to march to Kyoto with command of this new military unit and immediately defect to the Shishi. Fortunately, Matsudaira Katamori was able to discover this in time, recall the unit and its errant commander, and bring them back to Edo before they could do too much damage. The unit was promptly disbanded. However, when the Roshigumi was disbanded, 13 of its members petitioned Matsudaira Katamori directly for permission to stay on in Kyoto and continue their original mission. Matsudaira, either moved by their sincerity or just desperate for boots on the ground, said yes. These 13 men, bolstered by reinforcements from Edo, would form the core of Matsudaira's second attempt at creating a shogunal police force out of Ronin to bring Kyoto under control. The group based itself out of the village of Mibu on the outskirts of Kyoto, using a local Buddhist temple as their headquarters. It would be a while yet before they started using the name but this is the moment that gave birth to one of the most famous or infamous groups in Japanese history, 
the Shinsengumi, or newly selected corps. The Shinsengumi became the iron fist of Matsudaira Katamori as he strove to reassert his authority over Kyoto. Unfortunately, the group itself was deeply divided. The leadership was split between three very ambitious men, Kondo Isami, Serizawa Kamo, and Nimi Nishiki, all of whom commanded the loyalty of some, but not all, of its members. Much of its founding year of 1863 was spent up as these three men vied for supremacy in the leadership of the Shinsengumi. Eventually, Nimi was caught up in a scandal involving extorting money from a geisha house. Having violated the trust of the Tokugawa shogunate, he was forced to commit suicide. Shortly thereafter, Kondo Isami actually seized power over the Shinsengumi in what was basically a coup. He assassinated his remaining rival for leadership, Serizawa Kamo, after denouncing Kamo, somewhat ironically, for violent tendencies which reflected badly on the Shinsengumi. When they all were not busy killing each other, the Shinsengumi went after the enemies of the Shogun with a vengeance, earning the nickname the Wolves of Mibu for their brutal treatment of the Shogun's enemies, usually ambushing and killing suspected Shishi and torturing those who they managed to arrest. This all sounds pretty shocking by modern standards, but you do also have to keep in mind that in Tokugawa Japan there was no idea of reformatory imprisonment. Prison was just a place you kept people while you were interrogating them and before you executed them. So really, unless the Shinsengumi planned to interrogate a specific shishi, they had no real reason to try and take people alive. On a more day-to-day -day level, Shinsengumi members were supposed to comport themselves with a high degree of personal dignity and morality. That is, morality defined by the very rigid reading of the accepted social codes pertaining to samurai. The punishment for any violation, big or small, corruption, theft, disobeying an order, anything, was forced seppuku, forced suicide. The Shinsengumi Code of Conduct was extremely harsh, though there was a certain logic to it. After all, the conduct of the Shinsengumi reflected directly on the Tokugawa and on Matsudaira Katamori. Furthermore, its members were former ronin and thus already a bit socially suspect. Anything less than exemplary behavior would only serve to further hurt the reputation of the unit. Using the Shinsengumi, Matsudaira was able to come down hard on the Shishi terrorist groups in Kyoto and reassert a degree of order. Still, the atmosphere was pretty fraught in the city when Shogun Tokugawa Iemochi arrived in the summer of 1863. The impetus for Iemochi coming to Kyoto, remember, had to do with the politics of Kobugatai, the union between the imperial court and the Tokugawa Bakufu that was supposed to see the two present a unified front against the West. The marriage between the Shogun and the imperial princess Kazunomiya was an important part of that, but one of the preconditions for that marriage had been that the Shogun would agree to an imperial order to expel all foreigners from Japan. Members of the moderate Bakufu leadership, like Tokugawa Yoshinobu, figured they could agree to that kind of order and just stall indefinitely, avoiding ever having to implement it. The promise of expulsion had been made in 1862, and by 1863 it was becoming clear that stall tactics were not working on the imperial court. The demands for a firm deadline on when expulsion of the foreigners would begin were starting to mount. 
and the Shogun Iemochi's summit with the Emperor was aimed squarely at trying to figure out some kind of agreement between the two sides on this issue. In the end, the talks failed to produce anything of substance. Iemochi refused to implement an expulsion order, but Emperor Kome would not back down on the idea. The talks eventually broke down, and Emperor Kome decided to take another step on the road to undermining the authority of the Tokugawa. Instead of waiting for the shogun to agree to an expulsion order, the emperor unilaterally issued one himself, which the Bakufu then refused to enforce. This more or less put an end to the whole idea of unity between the court and the Bakufu. Now that the court was handing out its own marching orders and the Bakufu was refusing to enforce them, clearly everybody had to pick a side. In most cases, the side to pick was fairly obvious. The vast majority of domain governments, not wanting to single-handedly launch wars against the West while simultaneously rebelling against the Tokugawa, refused to implement the order, disguising that refusal with polite variations on the theme of, sorry, that's just not practical right now. However, there was one fateful exception, Choshu. Choshu was one of the only domains where Shishi groups had serious success in obtaining influence within the domain government. A faction of the domain bureaucracy was supported by local Shishi, many of whom were former students of Yoshida Shoin. That faction was able to take control of the domain government and begin directing policy towards Shishi ends. As a result, Choshu was the only domain to agree wholeheartedly to begin enforcing an expulsion edict set to go into effect in June. On June 25, 1863, Choshu Samurai began implementing the expulsion order. Now, there weren't any foreigners living in Choshu territory. The area was rich, but isolated from the central Japanese economy, and the territory had no treaty ports. However, Choshu overlooked the Straits of Shimonoseki, the waterway which separates the central Japanese island of Honshu from nearby Kyushu. This waterway was, and still is, very important for ship traffic headed towards the major ports of central Japan from China, and foreign ships passed through it regularly en route to major treaty ports like Hyogo or Yokohama. So the daimyo of Choshu, Mori Takachika, ordered that coastal fortifications be established at Shimonoseki, and on June 25th, these fortifications started firing at foreign ships passing through the straits. Their first target was an American merchant steamer, the Pembroke. The Choshu fortifications were limited, as many cannons were based on designs that were fairly out of date. However, some did possess more advanced weaponry, including modern artillery pieces and some small steam-driven picket warships purchased, ironically enough, from the United States. The Pembroke escaped with limited damage and no deaths, as did a French warship and a Dutch naval steamer carrying the newly appointed Dutch Consul General to his posting in Yokohama. And man, what a way to be welcomed to your new job, right? The bombardments were fierce, but casualties were limited. Less than ten sailors were killed in all three attacks, and somewhere around that same number were injured. Still, the Choshu forces had succeeded in frightening the foreign community, as word of the bombardments quickly spread and an atmosphere of panic gripped the foreigners living in Japan. That panic only became stronger on July 15th, 
when the American warship USS Wyoming attempted to counterattack and destroy the Choshu fortifications. This attack, ordered by the Wyoming's captain without any orders from U.S. Pacific Fleet Command, failed. The captain of the Wyoming tried to put a good spin on things, but the truth was he was unable to get close enough to the forts by himself to effectively attack them. The shore batteries remained active, and while the Wyoming was able to sink a few of those steam-driven picket ships, Choshu Domain was able to salvage them and restore them to service shortly after the Wyoming left the area. In exchange, the USS Wyoming was badly damaged. Five men were killed, a further six seriously wounded. It seemed this whole barbarian expulsion plan was going rather swimmingly, and nobody in Choshu paid attention to the dire warning from five of their number. Earlier that same year, five Choshu samurai had been sent abroad to London to study foreign technology. Now all five had returned to Choshu after hearing of the expulsion order. The leaders of this group of five, Ito Hirobumi and Inoue Kaoru, were former students of Yoshida Shoin who had begun their careers as anti-foreign shishi. However, they'd been convinced by their experiences in London that expulsion was impossible. Having a first-hand look at British strength, they were convinced that the shishi could not stand up to the foreigners. Trying to close the Straits of Shimonoseki, they argued, would be suicidal. Still, what the hell did they know? Choshu forces had just chased off an American warship, right? Clearly this is going great, and will continue to go great, and Ito and company were worrying about nothing and could just stuff it. Nor was the closing of the Shimonoseki Straits the only thing worrying the foreign community in Japan, and here we have to hit the rewind button a bit and head back to Yokohama in 1862. Remember, last week we talked a bit about a series of attacks on foreign-held areas like the British Legation by Shishi groups. Well, in September 1862, the most famous of these attacks took place. The target was a group of four British subjects, three men, one woman, including one Charles Lennox Richardson, a merchant based out of Shanghai. Richardson was, by all accounts, a deeply unpleasant man, with some very racist convictions about the barbarians who dominated Asia, something that will play a big role in what is about to happen. You see, the group of four went out on a ride one day and rode further from Yokohama than they were supposed to. The Bakufu tried to keep foreigners within a certain distance of Yokohama, which the foreigners perceived as arrogant interference in their affairs, but was actually an attempt to protect them from Shishi attacks. The party entered the village of Namamugi, a little over six miles from the foreign quarter of Yokohama, where they encountered the retinue of Shimazu Hisamitsu the father of the current daimyo of Satsuma, and brother of its old daimyo. Hisamitsu was on his way to perform Sankin Kotai in Edo. This, remember, was the old system of alternate attendance where lords would split their time between Edo and their home provinces. The policy had been relaxed in 1862 and was now optional instead of mandatory, but Hisamitsu was going, though he was not the daimyo of Satsuma, in order to consult with the shogun on policy. Now, normally when the retinue of a major lord passed by, the locals were expected to humble themselves by prostrating themselves on the ground while the daimyo passed. 
The British, however, would not do that because British subjects bow to none but the Queen, I say. Richardson himself took things a step further and flat out refused to get off the road and out of the way of the procession. We don't have a reliable account of exactly what words or rude gestures were exchanged, but I like to believe personally that Richardson was right in the middle of reassuring the rest of his traveling companions not to worry and that this was no big deal, when two samurai in Hisumitsu's retinue drew their weapons and stabbed him. The remainder of the samurai made a grab for the other Englishmen and Englishwoman, but they managed to escape carrying with them a mortally wounded Charles Lennox Richardson. Richardson lingered on for one month before dying in Yokohama. Now, Richardson was indisputably being a bit of an ass when things escalated, but that was beside the point. There could be no allowances for damn impertinent Japanese who dared kill an upright subject of Her Majesty Queen Victoria, even if said upright subject was a bit of an ass. The British minister of Yokohama, Rutherford Alcock, demanded that the Tokugawa Bakufu pay a sum of damages to the United Kingdom in apology, and that Satsuma Domain do the same thing. Furthermore, the two samurai who stabbed Richardson would have to be handed over for trial. In other words, the British had to be allowed to execute them, because, let's be honest, ain't nobody winning that kind of trial. In Edo... Tokugawa Yoshinobu, caught between a rock and a hard place, agreed to some of the demands. He would pay off the British, but he had no way to compel Satsuma Domain to do the same thing, or to hand over the two samurai. Shimazu Hisamitsu insisted that nothing untoward had happened, and look, if you don't want to get stabbed by samurai, you should probably just get the hell out of the damn way when they're coming through. However, said argument did not impress the British. Tokugawa Yoshinobu was able to stall things for a little while by offering to mediate between the two sides, but by the summer of 1863, said mediation had accomplished nothing. The British, absolutely furious, announced that the Japanese government would not give them satisfaction and therefore they would just take it. Incensed by the lack of resolution to the whole affair, and further enraged by the attacks in Choshu on Western shipping, the British began assembling an Allied navy to deal with the problem of Choshu. Meanwhile, the British would deal with Satsuma themselves. In July 1863, three British warships made their way to Kagoshima and sent a representative to the daimyo Shimazu Tadayoshi, stating that either Tadayoshi would hand over a payment and the two samurai who had killed Richardson, or the British fleet would flatten Kagoshima. The Shimazu family tried to stall the British for several days, but on July 15th, the British commander on the scene decided that enough was enough and opened fire on Kagoshima. What resulted was a two-day on-and-off battle where the British would attack the city and then retreat once the coastal defenses of the city began to turn their way. Kagoshima's defenses, composed of 80 cannons and a small fleet of picket ships, were no joke. In two days of brutal fighting, the British sustained serious losses. All three ships damaged, 13 men killed, and 40 wounded. In exchange, however, they burned down around half of Kagoshima and destroyed several gun emplacements as well as a school attached to the residence of the daimyo himself. Death tolls for Satsuma are not available, but were probably pretty high. Both sides claimed victory. 
the British said that Satsuma had been properly chastised for its bad behavior, and certainly burning down half the capital was some kind of chastisement, while the lord of Satsuma, Shimazu Tadayoshi, claimed that he had succeeded in driving the British away and preventing them from doing more damage. After all, half of Kagoshima was still standing. This whole incident, where a combination of stubbornness and pride on both sides resulted in a whole bunch of unnecessary deaths, would actually turn out to be a fairly major turning point in Japanese history. You see, on one hand, the British became increasingly exasperated with the Tokugawa government. Despite all the British demands, the Tokugawa had not given them satisfaction, and the British had been forced to intervene themselves. Clearly, the Tokugawa were not really interested in or capable of controlling all of Japan, so maybe the British would have to find somebody else who was, and who was willing to uphold British treaty rights and the quote-unquote rule of civilized law. On the other hand, up till this point, Satsuma had pursued a fairly moderate and conciliatory policy towards the Tokugawa since the death of its old daimyo in 1859. Now, however, things were beginning to swing in the other direction. The Tokugawa had not protected Satsuma, and had instead thrown the Shimazu clan and Satsuma domain under the proverbial bus, or I guess under the rickshaw in this case, by allowing the British to attack them. Incensed at this perceived backstab, the Shimazu family began reaching out in the other direction. Anti-Tokugawa samurai who had been associated with the old daimyo, like Okubo Toshimichi and Saigo Takamori, were recalled to Kagoshima and told to start reaching out to anti-Tokugawa Shishi. The daimyo of Satsuma, Shimazu Tadayoshi, even began reaching out to anti-foreign court nobles in Kyoto, claiming that the whole incident had taken place because Satsuma was trying to expel the foreigners, in line with the emperor's own wishes and in defiance of the cowardly Tokugawa. Most importantly of all, however, a few months after the incident, Satsuma Domain reached out to the British, not out of anger or out of a desire for redress, but to say, Hey, those modern warships you burned our capital down with are pretty nifty. Do you think we could buy a few of those off of you? This, then, is the tipping point. After 1863, the Shimazu family and their domain of Satsuma are going to start moving away from support, or at least toleration, of the Tokugawa, and more into the actively anti-Tokugawa camp. And since Satsuma was the third wealthiest territory in Tokugawa, Japan, that's a pretty big swing. Satsuma's transfer of loyalty from one side to the other is just beginning at the end of 1863, and it will be a few years yet before the process is complete. However, in the end, Satsuma's abandonment of the Tokugawa cause will be one of the biggest nails in the coffin of the Tokugawa shogunate. Next week, we'll turn our attention to the tumultuous events of 1864 when the pressures facing the Tokugawa regime will erupt into open violence. This time, however, the violence will not be restricted to terror or assassination. For the first time, organized armies led by different domains will clash in what could arguably be called the first real battle of a Japanese civil war. That's all for this week, and since this week is American Thanksgiving, instead of our usual ending, I wanted to close on a slightly different note. I don't say this a lot because, frankly, I'm terrible at self-promotion, 
But I just want to say how much I appreciate all of you who've taken the time to write reviews, contact me about the show with ideas or suggestions, or just let me know how much you enjoy it. And I especially want to say a thank you to those of you who've donated via Patreon or via PayPal to support the show. I cannot say enough how much that means. So, from the bottom of my heart, thank you to all of you. I'm very thankful to have such a tremendous audience listening to the show every week. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for Fall of the Samurai, Part 10.